A little less than six months into the new Healy administration, and it's looking pretty busy so far. The Senate is hashing out its budget as you hear this, but today we are taking a turn over to the executive branch. I'm Jennifer Smith of Commonwealth Magazine, and this week I'm talking with Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll. So let's get into it. Lieutenant Governor, how are you doing on this surprisingly sunny day? I am feeling great. You know, it feels like the start of summer always gets an extra swing in your step. Oh, I know. And also, very importantly, first things first, uh, Governor Healy was in Michigan for one day, which did make you acting governor. Did you rearrange the uh, entire corner office with Salem merch, issue any executive orders? What did you do with that? You know, we were talking about whether we should have an executive order to declare Halloween in May. But mm. um, we, we we just ended up doing all the normal stuff we needed to do instead. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, how has the tra- transition gone, generally speaking? It's a bit of a shift from kind of being the grand shiz in Salem for like 16 years to now kind of being part of this executive team. Uh, so what's a normal day look like at yeah, this point? There is no normal day is what is a normal day. And so that is not that different from being mayor where you may have a set of things you want to work on and it turns out to be a little bit different. I think this is a much um, a larger perch to sort of think about how we can support communities, work to make Massachusetts compatible, competitive, working on how we can keep Massachusetts affordable. Um, a real strong team. So proud of like the folks who are working with us on the cabinet and the opportunity to work with Governor Healy like in, in close connection, regular. We talk every single day. And um, it feels like um, we're in a position to really move Massachusetts forward at what I think is a really pivotal time. I'm sure every new administration feels like the next four years are critical. But as we come out of this pandemic, we're still very much in this transition phase. It's a little messy. Like, are people going back to work? What is going to be the impact of housing? How are our kids getting a quality education, you know, in a post-pandemic world? What's healthcare delivery look like with all the workforce shortages? So the challenges are real, and it definitely feels like we've got to meet this moment and make sure we can keep this state that we love moving forward. Well, what's it look like kind of zooming out? Of course, you're very familiar with what it looks like on the ground, on the municipal level, and we'll get kind of into how you're maintaining those connections in a bit. But, you know, how has the focus shifted? You know, I think when you're working in one community, obviously, it's 24-7. How do we make Salem better? How do we really care about what's happening on the ground? And I'm fond of saying when you're mayor, there's no hiding, right? You make decisions every day. They impact people you know and see, whether you're in the grocery store or in City Hall. Um, we have really prided ourselves in making sure we're not holed up in the state house. There's certainly work to do, and you, you need to find the time to dig in and meet with your teams and collaborate with others. But I think it's both fuel for the governor and I when we're out talking with community members, understanding what the challenges are, working collaboratively on issues together. So we're spending time inside and time, and time outside the building, which I think benefits us when you're thinking about putting together a strategic agenda tied to our most pressing challenges, some of which are things that you wrestle with at the local level, too. How have you thought about your role specifically? There have been, it seems like, a billion and five new cabinet secretaries. Um, and while we Just were kind two. Of, Just two. And or a billion. Uh, but, but, you know, thinking about kind of that transition period where you were kind of the point person on housing while we were moving toward the new housing secretary. So what's your role right now? You know, the good part about um, this role as lieutenant governor, especially in it in a partnership with Maura Healy, is there is a strong focus on team and a lot of shared leadership. 
And so we're setting ourselves up for success when bringing on a new housing secretariat. We're working on the challenges that we know um, we're going to have when you're bringing somebody on board new. And that power of convening, specifically around housing. You know, the state doesn't build housing. Cities, frankly, don't build housing. So we need to be in touch with folks who are building housing understanding ways that we can overcome the barriers to accelerate the pace of housing as one example. So leading a housing working group, making sure we're thinking about how we structure uh, an organization that was housing and economic development, and we're separating them. Where are we drawing the masking tape, you know, down the middle of the room? What's going to be housing? What's going to be economic development? So there's a lot of work to do from sort of an in-house operations perspective and a fair amount of strategy and convening um, that are required as we think about how do we really accelerate and enhance what we're doing on housing fronts, from public housing, existing affordable housing that we have, to the opportunities for new growth and different types of housing, from market rate to supportive housing for our most vulnerable community members. And there has been a lot of talk about the need to kind of balance the state's powers with local government authorities. And uh, as everyone knows in Massachusetts, uh, it can be kind of an awkward push and pull tug of war because the state tends to hold most of the cards. But again, you know, it it does end up impacting people at the local level. So how have you been thinking about the practical way to balance municipal interests with the fact that the state is looking at a 200,000 unit housing shortage that needs to close somehow? Yeah, I mean, I think the housing choice in the MBTA community's legislation gives us like a case study. That law was passed last year. We're charged with implementing it. It's going to require communities served by the MBTA, a public good, uh, responsibility to have multifamily zoning districts. Lexington's the first community to do that. All but two communities have submitted their plans and how they hope to achieve that, and we're working with those two to try and bring them into the fold. So you know, it, we, this is a perfect case study to see how does a city and a town work with the state government, knowing that we are one ecosystem when it comes to building housing. And there's going to be some challenges. We're seeing it. We've got a big push on emergency assistance shelter housing. Uh, we know that communities have characteristics they want to keep and preserve, and we know that we need new housing. So um, a lot of technical assistance, a lot of partnership and a collaboration. So those are the carrots. And then, you know, there are some sticks if you don't comply as well. Well, thinking about those state tools, um, and obviously you're coming from a municipal background here, so how do you measure the effectiveness of when the carrot's appropriate, when's the stick appropriate, you know, especially if municipal leaders are inclined to sometimes dig their heels in if it feels like it's an unfunded mandate situation? You know, a lot of my um, my job as a local leader was trying to advance my community, and I think the best way to do that is to make sure we're educating community members that we're kind of learning together. And in Salem, our aha moment around housing, and it's still a challenge, but the aha moment community members realized was when we had a housing production plan, when we dug in, did our own diagnostics, understand the census, are we growing, where are we growing, what the population needs are, do we have the right type of housing. That level of technical assistance is what we hope to bring to communities. So we have a lot of grants going out the door to work with cities and towns, some of whom have robust planning departments, but many of whom do not. And so we can bring that expertise in or help them fund that expertise so they can do their own diagnostic about the type of housing needs they have. We think that's helpful when you know who you're helping and who you're harming when you say yes or no to housing. Uh, We also think that there's lots of communities who want to be in this fight. Uh, and they have municipal land or old school buildings or ways that they can really collaborate and be a partner, whether it's with existing housing nonprofits, with housing authorities. Our most recent community compact round included a real push on housing. If you want a housing production plan, if you want to do a feasibility analysis for places that you could locate housing on your own public land or co-locate housing. Salem's looking at building housing on a high school site. 
that's not crazy to think about when you can't afford, um, when, when paraprofessionals and custodians and cafeteria workers and new teachers can't afford to live in our communities. So I think there's a lot of innovation and we want to help folks get there. Yeah, I really loved the kind of uh, development over time of co-locating uh, public housing and libraries, for instance, which is which Wonderful. is just such a great idea, kind of kicking around. One thing, uh, aside from kind of the housing mix itself that occurs to me, you know, I come from a local reporting background. I've spent so much time in these civic meetings where they're essentially dealing with the question of whose voices we're listening to in the conversation as well. Um, if I'm correct, you and I are both the same in that we are not Massachusetts natives who came here for college and then stayed. Um, so how do you make sure that, you know, new voices are being kind of accepted into the conversation because they might be like us and want to stay and kind of also help shape the state? Absolutely. I think um, I'm fortunate to, to live in a community that has been so welcoming and inclusive. And I think the Commonwealth overall, we are a place that, you know, welcomes immigrants, welcomes po folks from different places who are coming here to work. We have international students here all the time who want to stay. Um, and housing is obviously key to that. But you are absolutely correct. Sometimes voices get crowded out. Sometimes local um, uh, newer local residents to communities don't also engage in that same meaningful way. You know, we've all taken stock of who's participating during meetings, and oftentimes populations that show up at the zoning board hearing or at the city council or town meeting are older, whiter, more conservative, and housing secure, and frankly, often fighting new housing. And so how do we appeal to those who are in the community who are in need of housing but don't necessarily know how to navigate the system, um, aren't always the loudest voices or sometimes any voices around the table? Part of that's the responsibility of the community to kind of grow that housing core and educate. Again, the, the benefit of a housing production plan is you don't run off and do it behind a desk, right? You are out in community. You are bringing people together to talk about the challenges. And um, in many of our cities and towns, we know how many people are facing uh, the difficulty of living and affording to live in the place that they love. And so that is a, a shared, you know, alignment of trying to build more housing and, and understand how we can better serve that need. And at the same time, educating people about why it's important to show up. Um, certainly uh, having online meetings and hybrid participation has been a big help. You don't have to have a babysitter. You don't have to show up for the whole meeting. Maybe you only really need to participate in this one, you know, this one hearing that you're interested in. And I know many of our cities and towns have maintained, you know, their capacity to have hybrid meetings. That's been supported by legislation. Uh, that's been extended now for a couple of more years. So that's one way. I think the digital equity, just making sure people have access and know how to participate, uh, what it means, what's at stake. Another, you know, key way that we can make sure we're building more voices um, and digging in on everything from, you know, the mission-oriented goals that so many young adults in our communities have, whether it's around climate or around housing, uh, around childcare. I think there's a recognition that those voices matter, and how do we make it easier for people to participate? Mm. And. It, the state, as well as several municipalities, have also kind of been engaged in the process of just even figuring out what the land is that they control, uh, you know, and how that can be best used. So my understanding is there's a, a housing inventory underway at the state level right now looking to use state land for housing purposes? Exactly. So, you know, there's state-owned land that is across a number of agencies, right, your, your traditional um, you know, state-owned land that's managed by DCAM, Division of Capital Asset Maintenance and Management. And then you have our transportation agencies or uh, public institutions. 
And we're doing an inventory process and sort of triaging what would make sense for potential housing, either new development, co-location of housing. Uh, we know higher ed has a ton of housing opportunities as well, so we want to work with our higher ed partners as well. Uh, right now at Salem State, we have an emergency assistance shelter site being utilized from a, a former dormitory. So, you know, we're, we don't want to leave any stone unturned when it comes to both inventorying land and then triaging, you know, what might actually make a developable site. And the last piece of that is like, okay, how do we mobilize around, you know, expediting a, a, a process to dispose, to declare surplus and dispose of those par- parcels? Well, what's that look like on a practical level? Is there an example of kind of a site that's been identified as, as a strong potential for kind of housing? And then how long does it actually take to kind of come to fruition? I think one of the things that can often be frustrating is, you know, if you're following the public process... And they've identified a site and then nothing comes of it for, you know, 10 years. Does that work given the housing crunch that we're in? You know, one of our barriers and why we have such a large housing gap is just the timeline it takes to create housing, particularly affordable housing. I mean, it's years because you've got to stack all the resources. You've got to go through a site development process that's very similar, whether it's affordable housing or or market rate housing. And it's a challenge. But like just this week, we're actually closing on a sale of land to New Bedford, state-owned land that they're going to be using to convert to almost 30 units of housing. So we know it's possible. Our challenge is how do we kind of expedite that process? And part of the effort of triage and sort of bucketing, what's red, what's yellow, what's green, um, also tied to that is, okay, what's the process that we currently use? How can we you know, put our best efforts to making sure we're, we're um, shortening the lead, <laughs> shortening the length of time it takes to, um, to, de- to dispose of properties, to declare them surplus? Some of that's baked into state law. Some of that's regulatory. So we're unpacking that now with the goal of, Accelerating the pace, getting uh, the private sector involved as you know as as where it makes sense and as as that's possible. And so you're now handing this kind of over uh, for direction over to the soon to be slash new slash announced uh, housing secretary at Augustus who's coming over from Worcester. So how is he fitting in with that vision? Yeah, he'll be starting June 1st when the new secretary that's actually created had to go through a legal process. And, you know, we think Ed's just the perfect match of uh, what we need at this time. He understands the challenges at the local level when it comes to growth and development. He also has been responsible for growth and development and also had a, you know, a very strong refugee resettlement program in Worcester. So he brings a great deal of strengths. He's been a past member of the legislature. So some of the work we may need to do, certainly we're going to need legislative assistance in certain areas. Um, And as we carve out this new secretariat, you know, he'll be leading up housing and livable communities. There's much work to do. Some of it we just talked about, you know, triaging and inventorying public land and then hoping to put that in a position to actually create new housing. But we also have a relationship with housing authorities. You know, we're a state that has close to 50,000 units of state-owned housing, uh, affordable housing units, public housing. That is we're an outlier. That is very different from most places. They need attention, and our housing authorities also rely on state assistance for capital projects, for a lot of the operational regulatory kind of uh, management aspects of the work. So there's, there's, that's, a, that's sort of a, a portion of the work that he'll be taking on as well. And then housing innovation. We talked about housing choice and the MBTA communities law. How do we bring more innovation to building capacity in communities, to helping us from a smart zoning perspective, finding ways that we can work to assist creation of housing in that innovative pathway, whether it's things like ADUs and accelerating that. And I think the last bucket is like, what's our housing moonshot? How do we use the power of convening to bring together 
those who build housing, both for-profit and affordable housing, to help us understand how we break down those barriers. You know, right now with interest rates rising, we know that's one, you know, that's one piece of the puzzle here with projects that are permitted. They made it through the gauntlet of permitting, and they're ready to go, except interest rates went from 3% to 7%. So is there is there a lane there for us to drive down? We're talking closely with our environmental chief about how we can use federal funding and the notion of a green bank to think about investments in our public housing, which have a backlog of capital needs. How do we combine those forces? So that's another piece of what I would say is the innovation tied to resiliency. So we're excited not only for Ed to start, but to really engage in these meaningful areas around housing, it is, in my mind, it's just a basic human right, you know, being able to have a safe and accessible roof over your head. But it's also key to our competitiveness. If young adults and older adults who want to age in place with respect and dignity can't afford to do that in Massachusetts, we lose. We lose the, the fuel that we need. We lose the community members who have made our places special. Um, and we lose the opportunity to have the type of quality of life that I think Massachusetts has been known for. So this is mission critical, and that's why we have a separate secretariat, and that's why we're excited to, to not just admire this problem, but to get to work on, on addressing it. And Ed Augustus also presents kind of, again, an interesting example of the different pressures that can kind of take place in a city. Uh, critique of uh, his pick is focused on the fact that, you know, Worcester is boomed, but not necessarily equitably across different market types. So uh, what's your assessment of kind of his work in the city with kind of the history of emphasizing, say, Polar Park, but then critiques around the idea of uh, has all of the housing that's been booming been affordable, accessible in the way that kind of is reflective of the demand? So thinking about his track record, but also how is it illustrative of the problems that many cities in Massachusetts, especially gateway cities, are dealing with right now? Yeah, you're talking to the former mayor of a gateway city, and I, I'm fond of saying like no mayor in America, no city manager controls the market, right? And when you have a city that's being uplifted and revitalized, and frankly, Every community in Massachusetts has seen housing prices, you know, really shoot through the roof. So I don't think it's, you know, unique to the city of Worcester that what they've seen is through this revitalization, they've also seen, you know, the price of housing, the cost of rents really increasing. Um, our challenge is, you know, how do we address that statewide? Who better to do that than somebody who's been on the ground and understands the pressures of needing new growth? You know, we also need funding for schools and public safety and public works. That doesn't happen unless you have new construction or new growth happening in your community. Yet once you become revitalized and what I used to say is hip and historic, right, all of a sudden the rents are really increasing. Everybody wants to live here. It's sort of like a good problem to have, but you need that balance. We want people who pour coffee and pour beer for a living to be able to live in our communities too. Anyone who you hands you anything over a counter or who you drop your kids off in the morning or who might take care of an older adult, they need to live in our communities too. We all need uh, shelves stocked and you know food delivered, and those folks need to live in our community too. So that balance is really key. Um, you can't control the market if market forces come in and, and they see an opportunity. But how do we make sure we're also thinking about our most vulnerable members? And that's a challenge every local leader, frankly, you know, every governor across not just uh, not just the Northeast, but frankly, in this country is facing right now as well. So working together in partnership is going to be key. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier you were leading up the working group that was kind of envisioning what this new secretary was going to look like as as we move toward the process. Um, was there kind of a first initiative step that sort of either through that working group or in the months since has kind of been at the top of your mind? What's the first thing that you hope 
that a new housing secretariat does. You know, I think there was uh, a real concern that we not forget about the existing housing we have and the needs there, the preservation of uh, the public housing that we have and the uptick in their needs. Like that can't just get pushed off to the side as we think about uh, the housing enhancements. In fact, you know, how do we give fuel to our local housing authorities that own public land that are in communities across this commonwealth to help not only improve what they currently own, but maybe enhance it? And there's a number of examples of that happening. So I think um, we wanted to make sure we talked about that. Also, not wanting to lose home ownership. So much of what we think about, and frankly, a lot of the state's investment are in housing at the rental level because we need roofs over heads. Um, but we also know that you know home ownership is key to uh, growing wealth, and we know we have huge home ownership gaps when it comes to individuals of color and families of color. So how do we make sure we're allowing a diverse portfolio of housing needs and housing options, and not necessarily? you know, positioning just one place. You talked about balance, like we need housing for folks who are who are homeless right now. We need housing for folks who are individuals coming out of recovery or new, you know, new returning citizens coming out of incarceration. We need housing for young adults. We need housing for older adults to age in place. So these are all, you know, certainly needs. And how do we prioritize those and make sure we're thinking about resource spend and partnerships to do so? Does it seem like the resources are there for it? Of course, we're in the middle of budget season right now, um, talking about tax packages and and the question of basically, you know, where is the state getting its money and where is the state putting its money? Uh, do you think that the packages that have come, you know, either out of uh, Healy's office, the House and the Senate are setting aside enough? Is it is it proportionate to the scale of the crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an excellent question because I'm really proud of the resources, not just not just our administration, but this state is a real leader when it comes to the type of housing supports we have. Low-income housing tax credit programs, which funds a boatload of affordable housing across communities throughout Massachusetts, and a range of housing from supportive housing to traditional sort of um, housing for folks at what we call 30% AMI or below. Um, we also have, as I, as I mentioned, that state public housing, almost 50,000 units, a real outlier. We have programs that are tied for first-time home buyer use and Commonwealth Builders helping to really bring some equity to how we think about the growth of housing and who's building housing, neighborhood stabilization programs and development programs. So there's an array of dollars, and yet the need is still so great. Um, we are a right-to-shelter state, which means we spend money on emergency shelters that, other, frankly, other places don't. And I think that's, you know, not only unique but important. It's key to our values, right? We don't want families sleeping outside in tents. So we spend money to make sure we have shelter systems. Is it enough? I don't know that I would say it's ever enough because we have such a crushing need. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that we spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year, even more if you add in tax credits that we invest in trying to make sure we have the right type of housing. And you had mentioned, of course, the uh, other part of the MBTA Communities Act, which is the MBTA portion of it. Um, we've got a new general manager of the MBTA, Philip Eng. Uh, in watching the board meeting this morning, I was actually struck by one of the folks who came on and offered public comment saying that uh, one of the great regrets of his life is actually buying a house on public transit, essentially needing to kind of depend on a system that has over the past few years really kind of taken a turn in terms of service. So um, how are you feeling about the current state of our transit infrastructure, especially as it's impacting perhaps people's ability to decide where they want to live? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we have a lot of work to do with the T. I'm not quite sure we fully know where bottom is yet. 
This is, you know, years of not enough investment and, and maybe not um, a right type of decisions being made and where we were making investments. This is the first time in eight years we actually have a transit professional who's an engineer who's run a transit system in charge of the organization. So, you know, our first task in this administration is really being serious about making sure we have the right leadership. That's a key ingredient to turning a system around. And then the investments that are that are necessary to ensure the infrastructure is there. It's great to be able to have the first, you know, public subway system in America, but it's the first public subway system in America. So it needs additional infrastructure, additional investments that are necessary. We're paying the price for those disinvestments over decades. This is not blaming anybody, but we're going to find our way out of it. And I think someone who's living in, um, a, you know, a residential community that had transit-oriented development or is living on the line, Salem is the busiest commuter rail stop in the MBTA system, highest ridership, a lot lot of our growth, particularly downtown, is tied to having, you know, 16 trains and 18 buses every single day in and out of the city. And when it's not working, our residents feel the pinch of that. People who have to get to work or have to get to school or are relying on this to get to a doctor's appointment. And so it's incumbent upon us to make sure we're charged with fixing it. And we're taking that very seriously, trying to make sure we have the right people in place to lead those efforts from Phil Eng. Uh, to our new safety officer, because that's got to be the first, you know, commitment we make to people. It's going to be safe, and it's going to be reliable, and it's going to be affordable. And so that's the mission that we're on. It's going to take some time. It's unfortunately not going to happen as quickly as any of us want it to, but we know it's critical to the housing growth. It's it's not fair to push for more housing, particularly transit-oriented development housing, and not have the transit piece, you know, fully fully lined up. So we're going to stay on it. Last question, possibly a fun one. You're a Hawaii native. Uh, (laughs) I am a California and Utah native. What is the one interesting piece of housing policy that another state has right now that you think we could look at implementing? Well, I'll talk a little bit about Hawaii. I didn't spend as much time there as I wanted. I'm a Navy brat, so I was born there when I was little. And, you know, you move quite frequently when you're in the Navy Um, And we had the occasion to go back there. And I remember saying to my parents, why did you ever leave? (laughs) What's wrong with you? It's absolutely beautiful. But Hawaii has a lot of community land trusts. Many, many of the homes that are on different islands, you don't actually own the land underneath it. It's part of a trust. Um, You own the real estate up. And we know there's a lot of community land trust interest in Massachusetts. And is that another tool? that we could use to leverage home ownership prices, right? So that you, you know, if you can remove the land cost, it can be a bit more affordable just to own the real estate above. Um, Obviously, uh, there's experiments with that happening. Is that something that we might want to scale up as a means to create home ownership and frankly, new home opportunities in, in different segments? Great. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you to Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll for joining me in person in our little podcast studio today. And to our listeners, we will be back in your ears next week. Have a lovely Memorial Day weekend.